I was secretly driven by blowing up the secret vault of information and getting it out to everyone direct to consumer. Because when it's direct to consumer, they can do two things. They, one, can empower themselves, and two, they can hold us to account. That was a dangerous mission because I was asking people who have the reservoir of information that they trade on to give it up Mm. for free. Have you ever noticed that some of the best ideas come from unexpected places? Your next breakthrough may come from a leader facing similar challenges, but in a completely different sector. Welcome to Chief Influencer. I'm your host, Anthony Shop. Join us as we explore how today's successful leaders inspire, influence, and connect with others. Chief Influencer is a production of Social Driver and the Communications Board, who have teamed up to spotlight how great leaders and communicators are making their impact in the world. This episode is brought to you by the George Washington University's College of Professional Studies. With in-person and online programs, ranging from master's degrees in public relations strategy to certificate programs in digital communications, GW offers more than just the credentials to help working professionals get ahead. It prepares them to be leaders in their field. As a proud GW graduate myself, I can attest that faculty members combine academic rigor with real-world lessons that can't always be found in textbooks. Check out cps.gwu.edu for more information. Shakisha Robinson, I know you go by Keisha, is a career public defender with nearly two decades as a top attorney at the Public Defender Service for the District of Columbia. As a deputy chief for the Prisoner and Reentry Legal Services Program in the Community Defender Division, Keisha manages a team of attorneys in supporting and advancing the rights of incarcerated adults and those living with a criminal record. Keisha authored the DC Reentry Navigator, empowering you to succeed with a DC criminal record a 900-page, first-of-its-kind book for people affected by the D.C. criminal legal system. Prior to her current leadership role, Keisha was a senior attorney in PDS's trial division in the Felony One practice and served on the nationally recognized forensic practice group. A trailblazer in holistic defense and vocal spokesperson on issues of racial justice and criminal legal system reform, Keisha serves as the co-chair of the D.C. Reentry Action Network a coalition of reentry direct service providers, and the ABA's Committee on Reentry and Collateral Consequences. She's also the Director of Social Policy and Advocacy for the Black Public Defender Association and recently joined the Council on Criminal Justice and Leadership Greater Washington. She has been recognized as one of the top public interest lawyers in the country. Keisha received the prestigious Wasserstein Fellowship from Harvard Law School and serves as a mentor to public interest law students. She also teaches criminal law and other courses at the George Washington University. Keisha, welcome to Chief Influencer. Thank you so much, Anthony, for having me. I am so honored. I'm really impressed with all of the work of the podcast and all that you're doing to get the views and perspectives of the leaders in our region out to everyone. So thank you for having me. Well, thanks for being here. I should mention that uh, Keisha's here in her personal capacity today. And I think hearing the bio, everyone's wondering, how do you have time to do this or anything else? Because you have a very full plate, Keisha, uh, lots of things that you're doing, and we're going to talk about many of them today. But I wanted to start in your role. Um, I mean, you have to work with a lot of different stakeholders, most leaders do, to be successful and find ways to influence them. 
And I wondered if you could start by sharing some of the most important people or groups that you have to influence to achieve the impact that you want to make. Absolutely. The first, I do work with many stakeholders, but first and foremost, at the top of my mind at all times is the clients that I serve um, and the community in which they live, which is the District of Columbia, and their family members. I want to talk about that stakeholder group first, and then I'll talk about the others. Um, and so when I say clients, it's really anyone who is living with a criminal record. And that doesn't necessarily mean someone in prison, um, which is often in our mind. A lot of people don't know, once you engage the criminal legal system, even if you've just been arrested and it's dismissed the very next day, you now have a criminal record because you have an arrest record. So I'm talking about the really wide spectrum of people who've engaged the criminal legal system from arrest all the way to conviction, all the way to people who've either been incarcerated in our local DC jail or who are serving a prison sentence in the Federal Bureau of Prisons all over our country. Um, once you have a criminal record, there are thousands of collateral consequences that attach to that status. So I work with that stakeholder group and I serve them and it's an honor. Once you have a criminal record, it impacts your family members in many ways because of all those collateral consequences. Are you gonna be able to see your children? Are you gonna be away from your family for long periods? Are you gonna be taken out of the economic cycle of your home and therefore that impacts your family? And then also the community in which you live. That's your neighborhood. That's all of the people that's tangential to you that have gotten to know you and your family and the difference that your absence or status makes in their lives. And then is all of us, the rest of the community. Um, and that includes on a daily basis for me, um, other service providers who serve this community, as well as government officials who serve this community, um, many institutions where our clients find themselves at, whether it's the local jail, the Bureau of Prisons, um, whether it's with the United States Parole Commission. And in D.C., it's a very unique hybrid situation because there are local actors and stakeholders as well as federal stakeholders. And so there's a lot. Um, and then there's all of the policy shop, everyone that's sh um, shaping policy on a local and a national level. And so there are many stakeholders that I deal with. No, the reason that uh, we connect is I heard you speak to a group with Leadership Greater Washington, and I was really kind of um, captivated. Everybody was captivated by what you had to say. But one of the things is you shared, it's heavy, this book I'm lifting up right here, this 900 page, the DC, the DC Reentry Navigator. And you identified that the most important stakeholder for you, the folks who have been involved with the criminal justice system, had this gap to, you know, achieving what they wanted. And you um, decided there needed to be a comprehensive resource. Can you just, I, I was really inspired by you identifying a need and then coming up with a way to do it, which was not part of your job description. And really, like you have told me, and as I said in your bio, you know, it's first of its kind. So can you take us back and tell us a bit more about that story, about um, the guide, where it came from, how it came together? 
Sure. Um, this is you have it there too. A baby of mine that I um, have birthed, but it didn't start with this finished product, which I definitely want us to discuss. But it started with the deep realization and impact on my own life, um, the behind the scenes part, uh, the part that's not this book. And that is the pain, the cries, um, the need, the desperation, um, the seeking by people with no access to resource. People who are yearning um, to make a change in their life or to access resources so that they can begin to thrive and their families can thrive and not having it. DC is so unique because there is not a state prison anymore. As I alluded to earlier, all of our folks who are serving long sentences or serving felony sentences, they do so in institutions all over our country, as far away as California, as far away as Florida, and they don't, and they're in small numbers as DOC, I'm sorry, DC residents. Sometimes they're in institutions where there's only five people from DC. And they struggle and they write my program, the Prisoner Reentry Legal Services Program, asking for things as simple as I'm getting out in six months. Where can I enroll in a workforce development program? Um, I'm here and I have 20 years and I really want to engage in some educational opportunities. What can I do? Or I've been incarcerated for 40 years and I think I'm going to die here. I just got a horrible diagnosis. Can someone seek compassionate release on my behalf? Or I'm doing the sentence, I'm getting out soon, but my daughter, I haven't seen her in four years. Do I have any rights? Do I have any legal rights? Or have I lost my parental rights? I want to pay child support. I want to contribute in any way that I can, but I don't know the family system and I can't do anything about it from here. I want to get involved in our community and I want to learn about, um, you know, my civil rights. Is there anything I can do about that? Question after question after question. Um, and when you know the stakes and you know the cost and you know the need, at some point you have to decide whether or not you're personally going to sacrifice to essentially stand and deliver. Deliver on the thing that you know is needed. Um, and that bore out the DC Reentry Navigator, which is a compilation from soup to nuts, 16 chapters, um, meticulously thought through, and we can unpack that to address all of the issues that I have witnessed in my almost um, two decades where there's been a need and there's been a gap. Mm. It's almost overwhelming even just to hear those examples, those quick anecdotes from you, because you can imagine they're just as so much that folks need to know on top of the fact that it's been 10 years, it's been 20 years. I mean, wow, the world's changed a lot, right? So even if you knew the answer going in, which most people probably don't, you'd certainly um, need to Can have... we pause on that for a second? When you said it's yeah. been five, you know, 15, 20 years, there's a um, portion in chapter five on like tools to succeed. The book continued to grow because I realized all the things they needed as simple as you can't just say take the DC Metro. What does it look like? 
what does it has the turnstile changed? What is this thing called a smart chip card? And I literally was at the DC Metro with an intern with a camera taking pictures and you can see it in the book. So people can be sitting in their cell and not suffering from anxiety over, I don't even know how to negotiate transportation. If you've been in the city for 20 years, you know that Navy Yard, affectionately now called Capitol Riverfront, looks nothing like it did 20 years ago. And so those were the type of um, things that mattered to get out in the book because a lot has changed. Hmm. I want to spend a little bit of time on sort of how you made it as a success. But first, I just want to jump a little bit forward, which is now that this resource has been made available to so many folks, what type of response have you gotten from that most important stakeholder group that you told us about at the beginning? I mean, do you have, what have you heard from folks? Is this helping? The response has been overwhelming and especially from my heart Um, because people, you know, like think of any great athlete and they will tell you that champions are made in the off season. Champions are made at 4 a.m., 5 a.m. Champions are thinking about the plays as they um, lay in bed at night. And there are hours that nobody knows about, um, two, three, four, five o'clock in the morning, where I was doing just that, driven um, by an image in my head of someone sitting in a cell by themselves with the navigator empowering themselves, learning everything they need so that they can get out and thrive or thrive while they're inside. And after the book was published, I'll never forget, and I've heard from hundreds of people, but a gentleman, um, he was at a community event and he came up to me in person and he said, here's Chikisha Robinson who wrote The Navigator. And I said, yes. He said, I just got out a couple of months ago And I read your book cover to cover, all 900 pages, and I needed it years ago. And I'm just so thankful that somebody in D.C. is looking out for us. Um, But it's not just me. There were hundreds of people that were a part of this effort. Um, And one of the chief messages in the intro and in the book is that we are here looking out for you. We got your back. You're not alone. Um, And it was worth it to me to make those sacrifices so that someone can be hundreds of miles away and know that the D.C. community is looking out for them. Mm. What a powerful story that, I mean, it must feel um, really gratifying to. That's everything to me. This is not, you know, a lot of people, they do something successful. They go, oh, it's not about me. This really is not about me. If this is not useful for the people who need it most, then it's moot in my mind. Mm -hmm. What's the point? The whole point is meet me where I am, even if it's in a cell, um, with all of the lack that I have, and help take me to the next level. Mm -hmm. If the person for whom I wrote this has said that has indeed happened, Nothing brings me more joy. Mm. You know, there are 
probably folks listening, leaders or their top trusted communications advisors that, you know, they may have an idea for a resource or something that could be available for an audience. And we started with the need that you identified. And then we talked about um, the result. There's a lot in the middle, <laughs> you know? And so in the middle of that journey, um, I know that you had to work with a lot of other folks, you know, you had to, to, to influence the target audience and help them like the gentleman that you mentioned, you had to influence a number of people who were part of this project. Can you share more about that? Sure. Um, I have, I have sayings. Anyone who knows me knows I have many sayings. Um, but one or rather two that apply to the question you just asked is, um, the meeting that matters is the meeting before the meeting and the meeting after the meeting. Very rarely is it the scheduled meeting um, where things happened. And I, for me, this does not matter if it's not distributed. If people don't have access, then what's the point? It's just an idea and you haven't actually produced and I have very high standards of excellence, which we can unpack later. And so for me, I did a lot of behind the scenes work and behind the scenes meetings um, with decision makers and other chief influencers, if you will, which goes to my second saying, bosses talk to bosses. I live by that. Talk to the decision maker. And boss isn't just a title. It's not an elitist thing. It is the person who can produce or give you what you need. Um, and I talk to a lot of those people to get them on board with the vision, to give them the vision, to show and demonstrate for them how it advanced their own mission and their own needs, got them on board um, to be a part of the distribution to be a part of getting it together, that was before word one was written. Mm. That was before I got all of the um, folks who helped write and contribute before they got on board. I had to make sure that institutional stakeholders and decision makers could make this happen. And they weren't looking for fanfare. They weren't looking for credit but they were interested in the same vision and the same mission I had. And that is serving um, District of Columbia folks with criminal records. And once those meetings were had um, and agreements and handshakes were made, we started. I was on the front end. And so I was able to bring the energy, the conviction of knowing that this was going to happen because my vision, I'm a visionary and I have grand visions and I believe in the power of manifestation. You have to see it. In order to convince others to get to the finish line, you have to be able to see it. And I could see this. There was over 5,000 people incarcerated in the Federal Bureau of Prisons, hundreds at the time, upwards of 2,000 in D.C. jail, not to mention the hundreds, thousands actually, because one in seven people in the District of Columbia have a criminal record. I could picture them all walking around, holding, um, working from the navigator. And I was driven by that at my core. And so I spoke to hundreds of stakeholders to convince them that we can produce 
if we all came together and we brought our collective expertise. Um, I forgot to mention, one of the things I was really driven by in writing The Navigator is that this information is worth, I don't know, it's priceless. It's priceless. And so often the information is held in the brains of so-called experts, including myself. And I hold us to account because we traffic in this knowledge and we benefit financially through our careers and through our reputations in this knowledge. And so what I found in my career is the people who succeed are the lucky few who access the experts, maybe a counselor, maybe a case manager who gives them the info or a family member who works particularly hard. I'm for the underdog. That's what I do. I want everyone to win. I want to empower everyone. That's why I'm naturally a mentor. So I was secretly driven by blowing up the secret vault of information and getting it out to everyone direct to consumer. Because when it's direct to consumer, they can do two things. They, one, can empower themselves, and two, they can hold us to account. That was a dangerous mission because I was asking people who have the reservoir of information that they trade on to give it up mm. for free. And so that took a lot of influencing and a lot of convincing. Um, but I was able to tell everyone why it was in all of our interests um, to get the information out and that the world was not going to fall apart. And it has it. And in fact, it's brought more people to their doors looking for service. You know, it really strikes me, um, your passion that, and your commitment that come through. Obviously, we're a really critical um, piece of the puzzle to success for you to be able to get hundreds of people and organizations to come on board. And I think a lesson that's really important that any leader can take away is, you know, you saw the vision for where you wanted this to go, but you got the stakeholders on board with you to collaborate, to be part of it, to contribute, you know, before you produced it. And, you know, whether it's somebody runs a an industry association and they're releasing a report or whether somebody's in government or that, you know, I feel like in any industry or space, that lesson is so important be, rather than just build something and then go to everybody and go, okay, now will you share my thing that I made? Say, hey, let's do this together. I want you to be part of it. And everybody leverage their individual strengths. And then it naturally will have a distribution. And that was just a key thing that you figured out early on to make this guide a success. Well, that requires in part, Anthony, um, a divorcing, a letting go, uh, an attachment from, from one's ego. Mm. And we all have problems and challenges, but for me, that's not one. I am most rewarded by producing on the vision. However we get there, whoever I need to empower, encourage, motivate to get it done, I will do so. It's not in my interest to do it all by myself, even though I can't even count the hours I spent doing this. It's because I'm driven by the vision. And I'm driven by excellence. 
excellence at all levels. And so that means if you know more than me, great. I encourage that. I welcome that. If you have a more advanced, nuanced way um, that we should convey the information or you know what the needs really are, I welcome that. You're a subject matter expert and I encourage that in you. Um, I'm a real big believer in empowering people. Is what drove the book, but I also empowered the people who have all the knowledge. That is not an insecurity for me. Um, I'm that person that gives people too many compliments and is like, girl, what are you doing? How many times are you going to keep giving compliments? I want people to know how great they are. I believe that greatness is in all of us. And that's from the person in a cell to the service provider who's been helping people day in and day out to the government official or the institutional executive director who can make it happen. And when you bring that out of people and you edify it and you amplify it and they get excited about their individual contribution to advance the collective consciousness, it's like wildfire. Hmm. You know, I want to ask you, you, you mentioned the word uh, ego. And one of the things that we hear from a lot of leaders is that on one hand, they have this opportunity to use their leadership position and their personal and professional brand to get a message out. And at the same time, they're sometimes reluctant because uh, they don't want to seem egotistical. They don't want to seem like they're promoting themselves. And I think that's a balance that a lot of folks struggle with. Um, I wonder if you could to speak to that a little bit. Um, now we're hitting nerves, Anthony. Yes, I can speak to that. I can be um, humble to a fault. Um, and I've learned lessons along the road. I said we all have greatness in us, including me. If you can get to the greatness, that's the journey. That's the journey of the growth and the evolution and the churning is getting from A to B. And so I wasn't always there. Um, but two things helped to impact me um, to start to grow in that way. And one is I'm a very logical person, maybe as the Aquarian in me. Um, someone said, if you don't know, I mean, if you don't tell people, how will they know? Literally. How will they know if you don't tell them? Are they mind readers? That was logic to me. One plus one is two. And so I divorced myself from my discomfort around that, which also is egoic as well. Humility, too much humility can also be egoic. Um, and so I put information out there without making it about me one way or another. The value and the importance is that people need to know. And it becomes selfish of me as a holder of the information or the resource to keep it to myself. It's, the, it's another version of what I was talking about earlier about trading and trafficking in information. The second thing that um, helped change things for me is that I was not always on LinkedIn, um, or barely so. I had an account, no picture, no information, really. Um, and 
had planned for it to stay that way. And a mentee, that's why I love the mentor-mentee relationship because it's bilateral. I'm learning too. You're feeding my spirit as well. And a mentee was like, you know, new generation. Keisha, why aren't you on LinkedIn? I mean, you know, you don't have anything on here. And she was just so offended by it. And I was going to stick to my guns. And I didn't see any usefulness in it. And she said, um, she took down the tone of the conversation. She got really serious. And she said, I honor you. I love working for you. I look up to you. You are where I want to be. And I don't see a lot of people that look like you, that look like me, that sound like you. And if you don't put it out there, your journey and your success, how will I know so that it could encourage me and so I can see it? Game changer. Game changer. It's not about me. Not about any of us. It's about information, which is priceless and resource and access to the information and being in a position where you can put it out there. Um, it becomes a responsibility. I love that example because I do think sometimes it needs a push and we, sometimes we think the push needs to come from the top down, right? Somebody's boss telling them to have a digital presence. And in your case, it was the intern that showed you why it would be powerful to you to share, um, you know, And what... now she's in law school. Mm. First year in law school doing amazing things. If I if I remember it right, I think you told me somebody um, along this sort of frame said to you something along the lines of um, renegotiate your relationship with ambition. Am I remembering that right? Yes, yes. Um, once I get a nugget, um, the favorite you know the favorite type of mentee or supervisee is the one you work with, pour everything into it. And then they actually take it and make the course correction and you see the evolution happening. Um, that's me. People drop things into my spirit um, that resonate with me. I make the course correction. And so um, I was in a position once talking to an executive coach. And because um, I always fashioned myself as someone who's not ambitious. People are like, What? I'm actually really not. I'm really am driven by producing um, and the vision. But he said, you know, Keisha, you need to renegotiate your relationship with ambition. And I said, what? what? No, 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 I don't. And he said, the problem is you see ambition as advancing your ego, as an ego thing an elitist thing. He said, ambition, don't look at it like ambition. See it as scaling your impact. Scaling your impact. Right now, you impact and influence this pool. But your gifts, your talent, your vision, it's needed for so many more. And again, there's a responsibility. I believe in that to my core, to whom much is given, um, much is required. 
And so sometimes in life, it's how you change perspective, how you get to the point that can get somebody on board. I do it every day of my career um, with clients, with supervisees, with mentees, with other stakeholders. I am able to do pressure points by changing and shifting perspective and perception. But that's because I know what it's like when it happens to me. It changes everything. Um, you, you, you share such great stories and insight. You've obviously done that in your mentor relationships that you have. Uh, you know, recently you had an opportunity to give a talk at Georgetown and oh, yeah. uh, I'm reminded of it because you have, it, for those who are watching the video, you have some beautiful plants behind you and you, you talked about a plant. Can you um, maybe share some of those nuggets? Sure. Um, I was invited to be the keynote graduation speaker at a really special program called the Pivot Program in Georgetown School of Business that helps people with criminal records um, get an education and get a degree and get really great um, internship placements. And I was really honored. And in um, my address, I spoke about my elephant plant as an illustration of the greatness that we all have in us. And because um, Georgetown is a Jesuit institution and I'm a proud graduate of the Boston College Law School, another Jesuit institution, I started off um, with a quote from Prophet Jeremiah, which is, um, I knew you before I formed you. I set you apart to be a prophet among nations. That means we were born with greatness. But the arc of our life is that some of us get to it Many of us don't. And so much of what makes a difference is the support, the resources, the mentorship. But another piece that we have the power over is the ability to see it, to conceptualize it, um, to have a deep inner knowing that it's even possible. And so I believe to this day that anything you want to know, you can find out from growing a plant. And so I had a plant um, where I didn't give it a lot of attention, didn't put it in good soil, didn't put it in the right sunlight, didn't barely watered it. And um, my plant withered and almost died. And in the story, I talk about how I was pulled up by my father who said, show the plant that I gave you some respect and treat it accordingly. And I did that, watered it, sunlight, soil, all the things that we pour into ourselves, those things I just mentioned. And when I did that, the plant blossomed. It was beautiful. And that could have been the end of the story all by itself. Invest in yourself and you'll blossom. But the highlight is that seven years later, true story, my elephant plant started to birth and blossom flowers. Flowers, regular green plant, beautiful white flowers. And I was shocked. I never knew that it could do that. I didn't know it had flowers in it. Um, but what's deep and the point of the story is that the flower was already in the seed. It was already in the plant. 
the plant was already great. If given the opportunity and the environment and the resources and the access and the love, it could be great. And the second point is it may take longer than you think. It took seven years. I had no idea. What if it died at five or I threw it out at six? So you got to give time. You got to give all those things and pour into things and it will blossom and you'll see greatness. I believe it. I know it. I've seen it in my own life and I've seen it in others. I love this theme that is just embedded in everything you talk about, the greatness in people, illustrating that through the story of the plant and the potential that that you saw with your own project, but realizing that there were things you had to do for that project to become a reality. And one of the that you have, like you said before, you have a lot of sayings and phrases, which I love. Uh, one of the things you told me once is that potential can be a vision or a prison. And how do you make sure as a leader that you know which ideas are those poten- have the potential, you know, to pursue because you can't pursue everything and then which ones to leverage your strengths but also to bring other people's strengths to the table to make them happen. Well, the greatest hack, right, is forgetting who you are. If one could have the courage of their own convictions, I believe in that. And that's the real journey for, for me and for any leader. And everyone, I tell everyone, you're the CEO of your own life. So I'm the CEO of Keisha Robinson Incorporated. Everyone's a leader. Um, and certainly in their family. They probably have a whole holding company when they think about all the things that they lead. You have to get to know yourself and believe in yourself. And all of us have an inner knowing. um, And sharpening that tool comes from doing the work. When I say the work, I mean the inner work. And I do a lot of inner work um, to strengthen myself, my values, my North Star, and hold myself to account. And there are also things about me that are by nature, like my commitment to excellence, um, my intellectual pursuits. I'm a seeker. That's never going to end. And so when you combine those things, that means for me that I listen to all three of my brains. We have three brains. We have our brain, which is logic, our mind. We have our heart, which is our emotions and what we feel. Sometimes you can't articulate it. You don't have the words for it, but you know it. It's an inner knowing um, in your heart that can drive you. Like my heart for the people suffering is why I was able to sacrifice. My brilliant mind, my legal mind, my intellectual mind is how I'm able to produce the thing to serve the people that benefit from my heart song But then there's your third brain, which is your gut, also known as your intuition, your instinct. And when you are in alignment with all three, which comes from the courage of who you are, you know what it is. In the way that you know what something is, one answer. You have peace. It's that simple. You have peace. If you have peace, you're in alignment. If you don't, you're not. 
every single, all electrons, everything was firing. This needs to be done. This needs to be done. And it needs to be done now. And so potential just means you haven't done anything yet. Potential is a nice, sexy, seductive, enticing idea. I believe in producing. And so when you don't go from potential to producing, you are imprisoned by your idea. And sometimes you can get stuck and it's hard to get out. And after a while, people start to fall off and they're not listening with the same energy because you're not delivering, you're not producing. And so for me, once I have the green light, the go ahead, there's no stopping me. I will do what it takes, move heaven and earth to produce on the thing that I am convicted by. I've searched my heart, my mind, my spirit, my intuition. And if everything says this is the right thing to do, I'm going to get it done. Hmm. Keisha, the last thing I want to ask you is just um, any, you know, where you maybe have gotten inspiration outside of your main career or earlier in your life. And in, and in fact, I'm, I'm kind of thinking of an example you told me before um, with a judge, if I recall it. And I'm just wondering if you could share that story. Like I said, life is a journey. This is Keisha Robinson 20 years later. Um, And 20 years later, you get the benefit of all your ups and downs, all the lessons, all the successes, and all the failures. You see, and that's where wisdom comes from. You don't see it at 22, but you see with wisdom how it was all by design and it all makes sense um, to make you into the person that you are now. And there are pivot points, pivot points all along the journey. And one pivot point for me happened very early before I ever went to law school. And a judge who I was interning with, who was a mentor, I was telling him the story of someone who, in my mind, hurt me or harmed me. And um, I was the victim, if you will. I didn't use that language for myself, but sort of this, you know, um, sad story where I was going to get all of this uh, comfort. And the judge shocked me and said, wow. It must have been so hard um, for this person. Um, the person who I thought, you know, um, hurt me in some way, how life must have been so hard for them based on the story I had told the judge and how it's remarkable that the person, given all of their hurdles and all of their challenges, how they even made it as far as they did. It was a, um, not only a pivot point, it was a convicting point, a stopping point. And it triggered for me um, in my young adulthood, the tapestry 
That's all of us. We're all connected. We all have stories on any given day. Um, we are the victim or the perpetrator. On any given day, we've done the harming or we've been harmed. On any given day, we are all, including those with criminal records and those who serve as chief influencers, are dealing with processing and managing trauma. Often from childhood, some have the resources to get past it, over it, through it, and some don't. And that experience inspired and influenced for me um, the nuance of it all, the complication of it all. And I think that's what has made me um, in part so successful is I can speak to anyone anywhere at any time on any level. I will meet them where they are because I understand all that goes in to them. Just like the plant. One day you could be withered and dying and depressed and sad and anxious and fearful and act out of that low vibration. But I also know you have the potential to birth flowers and blossom flowers. And so seeing people in, as the whole humans that they are, um, I bring that to every interaction. Hmm. Well, what a powerful way to wrap up this conversation. We could talk a lot longer, I feel like, and we will offline, I'm sure. But I just want to say um, thank you so much for joining us on Chief Influencer um, Keisha Robinson. And for folks who want to find out more about you, we heard that they can check out Chikisha Robinson on LinkedIn and see yes. uh, what you have to share there. Thank you so much, Anthony, for what you're doing. Um, thank you for giving people a platform and giving them a voice. It means a lot. I appreciate it. Well, I really appreciate you being on. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Chief Influencer, a production of Social Driver and the Communications Board. If you know a leader who should be featured as a chief influencer, please nominate them at chiefinfluencer.org. For show notes and more, visit us at chiefinfluencer.org or follow Chief Influencer on LinkedIn. Until next time.